Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Today is Fed Minutes Day, and here at Bloomberg Radio, we think that's a kind of a fun day, so we get excited about Fed Minutes. So does our next guest, Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence, former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Danielle, what are you really looking for this afternoon when we get a look at those uh, Fed Minutes? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to be looking for the tacit, and I use that word carefully, the tacit concession made to the the, the, the bears made to Christopher Waller, the former research director uh, of Jim Bullard at the St. Louis Fed, who's now a governor, uh, and Mester and George and others who have been insistent that the Federal Reserve does not belong in the business of, of housing, of the word we would use internally when I was at the Fed was credit allocation. Mm. Um, so it's an inappropriate uh, place for the Fed to be, and it has been for about a year. And the only nod that we saw to them in the minutes was that they, you know, they, they said specifically, we're going to get out of the housing business. We're going to get out of the business of mortgage-backed securities and focus more on treasuries. So I'm interested in that conversation and how that went down, because I think it's what prevented a dissent. Yeah, a lot of people, though, are getting downright angry that they're waiting this long to make those statements and that they're waiting until the March meeting to make any moves. Inflation is at a level where, you know, I'm getting... I'm getting text messages from from viewers who finally figured out my cell phone number, and there are a lot of oh, expletives in them. Um, what do you think about the possibility of an emergency meeting or a 50 basis point hike in March? You know, when when I saw, and I, I, I was I was actually I was gratified that Jim Bullard stood by his position on Monday morning, and because it it at least seems to me that there are at least a few people inside the Fed who are not insensitive. And that's the word that I'll use. So it's all good and well to come out with an emergency rate cut in March of 2020, uh, you know, when investors are being, you know, in the crosshairs. But it's not okay to come out with an emergency rate hike to answer the plight of everyday U.S. workers. And that's to me, it boils down to being white and black. It's as simple as that. We will come to the rescue of investors. We will not come to the rescue of U.S. households. And the Fed is mandated to make policy in the public interest and to suggest that when, 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 we're, when, when we've got the gallows humor going on about skateboarding and relearning how to do that and gas prices are you know, hitting $4 a gallon, it's, it's just, again, the word that comes to mind is insensitive. $5 a gallon. We were talking about <laughs> gas hitting $5 Good a gallon. Good gosh. Yeah. So, Dan Danielle, I mean, when we think about inflation in the Fed, I, I'm not even sure the Fed's in that business. This isn't inflation this time around primarily supply chain driven so is this uh, i don't it's know a good point think. maybe it's something that the fed can't address yeah how do you think about that i you know i don't think it's supply chain driven we we saw production this morning increase by 0.2 yep. percent once you got rid of the, the cost for heating oil and gas so I, I don't buy that i think that the supply chain disruptions are coming undone we're seeing inventories be replenished uh and at the you know, on the other hand, 42 million Americans got a 25 percent bump up in their allocation for food spending on October the 1st. And that's why, despite world food inflation being 
off the rails. It's even more off the rails for your average American family because the, the U.S. government has put, pumped so much fiscal spending out into the economy. So we, we have to look in the eye the fact that, that fiscal spending, and there's been countless empirical studies done on this, when you give people money, directly deposit cash into the hands of those with the highest propensity to spend it, they're going to spend it, and they did. And inflation is lagging, so it's dragging down growth, even as the fiscal stimulus has largely gone away. Can I just ask you uh, quickly about Sarah Bloom Raskin? What's your take on um, the kind of job she'll do if she's ever confirmed? Well, and I think it's – I really do think it's a big if. People don't quite understand the importance of Pat Toomey sticking to his guns and saying, I'm I'm self-imposing term limits. And so time and again, he's been able to actually do his job and, 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 and you know, give the scrutiny that's needed to certain positions, whether it was the Fed's municipal bond facility that he insisted be shut down along with those credit facilities in the December 2000, um, 2021 uh, – 20, excuse me, 2020 stimulus. I, I think that there has been an inappropriate amount of, um, of disclosure and I think demanding questions as opposed to – uh, being placated with saying I'll sign a pledge that's never existed and dreamed up by Elizabeth Warren. No, I, I think an appropriate amount of scrutiny is called for. And I find some of the right. testimonies, plural, that have been that have been given to be disingenuous because of the work right. that they've done in the past on climate change. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate Great your, your you. thoughts and insight. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence. Speaking of inflation, boy, no matter where the, where you look, you see it. CPI, PPI, retail sales, uh, certainly many signs of inflation out there, whether it's at the gas pump or the supermarket. The question is, um, have we peaked? Has it peaked? Uh, when will we see inflation uh, subside? And does the Federal Reserve and other central banks have any role here? Let's check in with Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets. So, Jennifer, I'd love to get your call here on kind of U.S inflation. Have we peaked? Are we near a peak? How do you think about it? Uh, Good morning. I'm going to continue saying that we have not peaked just yet. We are actually expecting uh, the inflation data to sort of, you know, uh, peak, maybe roll over. I'm going to say like late spring-ish. I don't think it's going to head south very quickly. Um, Unfortunately, it probably stays somewhat elevated before heading a uh, before cooling somewhat in the second half of the year. But um, so, no, in, a, in a, my long-winded way of saying it, I don't think we've got peaked just yet, but we're calm, almost there. But you do think that we're going to come back down. Um, is that because you think uh, the Fed is going to hike rates and that's going to cool down the economy and inflation? That would be the hope. I mean, that's, uh, you know, they, I mean, central banks around the world, uh, as you are just pointing out, uh, are, are facing the same issues right now. And, uh Given such high inflation rates globally, you know all the central banks, including the Fed, are um, you know starting to to rein in all that accommodation that they've poured out during the, during the pandemic, um, and this is the time. And and with inflation, before inflation gets too much out of control. So Jennifer, I'm looking at the WIRP Go function on the Bloomberg terminal. It shows me potential for seven rate hikes in calendar 2022. Is that something you ascribe to? Oh. <laughs> 
it's pretty high. The numbers keep rising, I feel, every, every single week. Uh, we are actually, we are looking for five rate hikes uh, this year, uh, 25 basis points uh, each and, and, and kicking off in March. I think that's a more, you know, I've been saying a more reasonable pace. Um, I think 50 basis points, for example, in March that some are calling for is a, uh, uh, I think it would be quite aggressive, um, and I think it was only like one um, one Fed member in particular that has been pushing for that. But I think the other um, policymakers have been taking a more of a balanced approach and looking for probably 25 basis points instead. One of the concerns, I mean, we all know what um, rate hike cycles look like, or even the kids can go back and, and look at the history. But one sort of unknown is how quantitative tightening will affect markets. How do you see that panning out? Will they just um, let it run off the balance sheet? Will they actively sell assets? Is it going to be a problem for rates markets? So we are looking for the, the QT process to start probably in July um, and, and, and sort of taper off um, at a steady pace. But the Fed has always said that they are going to focus um, more on the Fed funds target specifically, uh, because that is what the public knows, and and how you know whether or not balance sheet uh, runoff is is going to impact anyone's mindset is 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 a big question. But I think they're going to just basically use the Fed funds and talk and keep talking about raising rates and sort of in the background let uh, uh, let the balance sheet sort of uh, start um, coming off. Um, and I think that will also have the impact of you know of a of a tighter tighter financial conditions besides just rate hikes. Jennifer, uh, at two p.m. Wall Street time, we're going to get the FOMC meeting minutes. Uh, it's always big news here at Bloomberg. What are you looking for when when you peruse those minutes? There's always a lot to go through, but it's always interesting to get like the little little, little tidbits, like you know how. How much each policymaker was pushing for, what the, you know, how many, um, whether several, a few, you know, a majority of, of people that were pushing for, you know, a, a more aggressive uh, tact at the beginning of a, of a rate high cycle, or are they trying to go more steadily? Those are the little nuances, I think, just to see, you know, where, uh, how they're going to uh, start off. You know, even though they were saying that they're going to start uh, raising rates right now, and even though, as you're pointing out, we've got seven rate hikes potentially coming in 2022, which, again, I think is a bit extreme, um, you know, things can change. And once inflation starts to taper off, they could start reining in a little bit some of their um, their hawkish talk. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to be uh, – I don't think they're on autopilot. Is, I think that's what I'm trying to say. And I think most central banks are probably in that mode right now. Um, not all, right? We see some – uh, interesting exceptions in the, the Bank of Japan springs to mind. We had an interesting opinion piece this morning on Bloomberg saying, you know, the economy, the growth uh, or the, the recovery in Japan doesn't look great. But as we all the rest of us deal with this huge inflation, um, the rest of the world might uh, look to Japan and think one percent doesn't look so bad right now. What's your take on the contrasts um, of the Bank of Japan with with the rest of the central bank regime? Japan has been, it's such an interesting story there. And I mean, they've been facing, you know, deflation all, you know, more or less for the last at least uh, two decades or so. Um, and that is one um, um, central bank, as you just pointed out, that is remaining stubbornly on, on the sidelines. And Governor Kuroda con uh, continues to, to stress that point. Um, you know, they had bond yields, for example, rising. Their 10-year yields were rising in conjunction with everybody else's uh, uh, last week and earlier this week. And they had to pour some money in to, to, to bring it back down to what their target was, but they they remain so dovish. And even one one or two of the uh, the the, the policymakers within the bank 
um, continue actually to push for even more accommodations. So that's a huge extreme from what we're seeing elsewhere, you know, with, with the G7. Even the ECB right now, you know, they're starting to um, become less emboldened to their um, transitory story, and we're probably going to see, you know, it's still a, a matter of debate right now, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see rate hike before the end of the year. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, real pleasure talking to you. Um, we obviously are following this story very closely um, and, and we'll continue to. Uh, Jennifer Lee there joining us from BMO Capital Markets, where she is senior economist and managing director. Retail sales got a really strong number today, 3.8%. The street consensus was 2%. So Good numbers on the retail sales front. Let's dig down a little bit deeper and talk retail. We do that with Andrew Hogginson, Global Managing Partner of Consumer Goods Retail and Logistics at Infosys Consulting. The big mark against him, however, was he got his MBA from the University of North Carolina. Why he didn't go 10 miles down the road, 15501 to Duke, I don't know. But we'll try to plow forward with Andrew. Andrew, we got some good retail sales today. Retailers, I guess they're in pretty good shape here, supply chain issues notwithstanding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're definitely seeing uh, better than expected numbers here in January, and it's you know a number of things driving that. Such as, well, you know, there's a couple things. First of all, we're seeing uh, you know a little more relaxing of some of the the mask mandates coming into view. So I think people are getting a signal from the government that it's safe to go out. Uh, I think at the same time, despite inflation, I think there's still you know the historical good movement in the market. Housing markets, et cetera, driving people to go out and spend money uh, on housing improvements, gardening, et cetera. And then the other thing I think that's going to be interesting here is even though Omicron's out there, we are starting to see companies uh, move back to a hybrid in-person uh, workforce, which is driving some of the growth we're seeing in some apparel, health and beauty. So a lot of, a lot of factors here around, you know, relaxing of restrictions, signaling from the government of, you know, it's safe to go out. I think those things are going to help us see an increasing number on the retail side. By the way, is that, um, you know, this new hybrid work? Um, I, I talked to some guests this morning who were in the office three days a week and then home on Mondays and Fridays. Is that leading to higher retail numbers? Are they able to shop more? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think, first of all, as people go from the home office out into the office, again, I think it's prompting sales. Uh, in some of the apparel sector, et cetera, because people haven't really shopped as much uh, for the office in the last you know year and a half, two years. Secondly, when we are out and about, right, we're more prone to stopping at a store, getting you know eating out at a restaurant, doing things uh, that drive those sales as well. So yeah, I would definitely say that's prompting some of the retail surge we're seeing. I think the other thing you know you touched on is the supply chain, right? So supply chain has been one of those things that's really dragged on us for quite some time both from a perspective of available product, right? So do we see product on the shelves? And, you know, for, for a while now, we've been struggling with, you know, raw material shortages. We've been struggling with labor in plants. And we've been struggling with product getting moved, you know, from overseas into the, into the U.S. and into stores. Uh, and now we're starting to see some elements of that relaxing a little bit as companies are, are driving innovation on things like automation and distribution centers, right, using robotics to move goods better through D.C.'s. Uh, we're seeing use of artificial intelligence and machine learning and what we call digital twins, where companies can create a digital version of their supply chain and use that to optimize goods movement. How do I do a better job of 
moving things, given some of the port congestion, given some of the limitations on containers. So those are some of the, I would call, intermediate-term things that companies are doing to improve the flow of goods through supply chains. How about labor? We've heard from a lot of retailers and a lot of just businesses across the economy that uh, they're really struggling to find the people they need for their businesses. How is it in the retail space? Yeah, I think so. So again, breaking that down into two pieces, if I think of front of store labor, right, we are starting to see a growth. And obviously, the January numbers show that there was a lot of good hiring in the retail sector, you know, and, and that includes, you know, whether it's department stores, health, you know, and personal care, um, et cetera. So we're seeing some good hiring there. On the back end, the shortages of labor have really mostly impacted us in terms of things like truck drivers, uh, home delivery drivers, distribution center labor. And again, where we're seeing some of that pressure relieved is these automation, uh, these automation investments that allow companies to get more done with less. You know, the other thing we see is is the use of robotics automation, which is, you know, computer automation that allows us to get work done, you know, menial tasks, data entry, things like that done by bots, freeing up, you know, other people to do other jobs. So I think we're, we're able to get more done with less, uh, you know, given some of these some of these investments in automation. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here, giving us a breakdown on kind of what's happening in the retail space. Andrew Hoganson global managing partner of consumer goods, retail, and logistics at the consulting firm Infosys Consulting. That's a New York Stock Exchange company. I-N-F-Y is the ticker there. Again, we got retail sales this morning, 3.8% um, growth year over year. Consensus was 2%. So adding some, you know, I guess some ammunition to the folks are saying, hey, this economy is in pretty good shape. Yes, there is inflation out there, but the consumer generally is in pretty good shape continuing to spend. One of the many things that I don't understand about this pandemic and the economic disruption resulting from it is this whole thing about the great resignation, these three, four, five million workers. Who are they? Where did they go? How, how did they do it? And I really don't know. How did they answer. get so lucky? How did they get so lucky? I'm thinking about uh, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg's former well, stocks editor. Um, I blame him. I put him in that bunch. But I maybe mean, our next guest. He worked here for 30 years. If you work someplace for 30 years, plus you're incredibly smart. Yep. Uh, you save well. You invest well. You should retire. Okay. All right. All right. I just said, Dave, where are you going, buddy? Michael Hansen. He's the CEO of Cengage Group. Uh, Michael, who are these people? Where did they go? Are they coming back to the workforce? Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, actually, the example that you said, the retiring um, people are the, the minority of these people. Yes. The vast majority of those people that are resigning are actually reassessing their career. They're saying, what don't I like about my current job? And what, where do I want to go next? And about 83% of them feel that their current job is not really supporting their career and is not supporting them. Yeah, that's why I say, you know, he should be retiring. If you, if you have a 30-year career and you do very well and retire, that's no, that's no surprise. The great resignation is weird in that people who you wonder, how do they have enough money to, to quit their jobs are doing it? And one of the points that you make, Michael, is that they're actually making financial sacrifices. They're not retiring to Indian Hills and playing 18 holes a day. They're, they're doing other stuff. Exactly. And, and this is why this is actually good news in a way. These people are courageous. They take risks. 
And what they say is, I want to learn another skill, and I want to get a better job that gives me more satisfaction and better pay. And that is something that actually should give us, uh, you know, great confidence in the future and great uh, conviction in the American labor uh, labor force. In a way, and Michael, they're shaking up the job market as well. You know, that the courage of those people, which is what I hear you saying, is forcing employers to do better in terms of the wages they offer, in terms of working conditions, in terms of dealing with, you know, the working class. Absolutely. And the only thing I would add, uh, other than what you said, is the employers should think about also about how they reskill and upskill their workforce. How, what can they do to give them education and training and give them opportunities while they're working to get better skills, to get a better job and better pay? They don't have to wait until they resign. They can do it when they're actually employees. Michael, uh, Matt and I uh, have to come into the office hmm. every day. I don't. Uh, we don't have an option per se, but it seems like we are very much the outliers in this new world order. Are you in the camp that says we are now in a permanent hybrid type of environment? I'm in the camp of, first of all, let's not stipulate what the future is going to hold. We got to get open and we got to learn and we got to learn what works and what doesn't work. And I am, however, a believer that we're not going to go back to the old world that everybody has to show up in the office at, you know, 9 a.m. on Monday morning. That's not where we're going to go. Where we're going to end up is going to be a hybrid model, but how are we going to mix it, how we have technology influence this, I think is open. And what I recommend to other CEOs that are, you know, we are a four and a half thousand people company. We're experimenting a lot and we're learning from each other and keep that open mindset. Yeah, I mean, I, I would point out that it would be technologically possible for me to do this job from home. I wouldn't it want was. to. Yeah. Um, because we pick up so much from our colleagues here. We discuss stories. I, uh, you know, am in the midst of breaking news. Are we going to be able to do that online eventually, Michael? What do you think about um, the possibility of working in the metaverse? I, I don't think we're going to, in the foreseeable future, I don't think we're going to be uh, doing this online. I think we've got to find the right blend and the right mix. And you use some great examples when you bump into colleagues, you share stories. And think about somebody just joining a company. You've never worked for this company. And how do you get you know, a sense of what the culture is like if you don't have a cup of coffee with people or share a meal or you know, bump into them at the water cooler? So I do think hybrid, uh, that, that finding the right mix of face-to-face and online is going to be the wave of the future. Hey, Michael, thanks so much uh, for joining us there. Michael Hansen, CEO of Cengage Group, talking about the great resignation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.